0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Robert McCall Miller about his book titled A Sociolinguistic History of Scotland, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2020, which really is the first sociolinguistic history of the languages spoken in Scotland. Um, The book analyzes a number of different languages spoken in Scotland, including Gaelic, Scot, Pictish, uh, British Norn, immigrant languages, and Scottish Standard English. Um, Some of them it talks about in in in-depth case studies, but generally the book uh, traces the languages and the sociolinguistic history of languages in Scotland. Um, I really enjoyed this book and learned a lot from it, so I'm very pleased to welcome Robert to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. Sorry I didn't realise I was to speak. Yes, uh, it's, it's lovely to be asked. Uh, 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 any amount of flattery is always welcome.
1: <laughs> well, let's start off, please. Um, could you introduce yourself a bit, your academic and perhaps especially your linguistic background, and explain kind of why that led you to write this book?
0: Okay, i um, I'm Professor of Linguistics and Scottish Language at the University of Aberdeen. Um, uh, My own linguistic background is rather mixed, but in some ways typically Scottish. I come from a village uh, in Renfrewshire in southwestern Scotland called Eldersley, which is famously where William Wallace came from as well. Um and uh, my mother's family were almost totally rural Scots speakers with a bit of Ulster Scots thrown into it, uh, whereas my father's family, particularly his mother's family, were Gaelic speakers, and indeed my father was essentially bilingual, although I hardly ever remember hearing him speak the languages. I think I've always been driven to try to understand why we're in the situation we're in, Um you know where I come from in Renfrewshire, a uh, thousand two hundred years ago would have been uh, the dominant language would have been uh, British, uh, a relative of the ancestor of Welsh, uh, but there are also Gallic place names and also Scots place names embedded across the whole of the county, uh, often very different from place to place. This has fascinated me from when, uh, for probably from before I could read and write in fact so it's a compulsion like a lot of these uh, sort of topics it's a compulsion that stays with you until you've got the time to do it
1: and so then what kind of what was the impetus then or the final catalyst that resulted in this being the moment for this particular book
0: well um I had been thinking about something a bit like this for a while. My original idea had been one which would compare the sociolinguistic development of Scotland and Ireland, the two sister countries. Um, But as time went on, it became more obvious that actually there were more issues with trying to do it that way than there were um, advantages to doing it. For instance, Scotland was never a country which was monolingual in the way that Ireland was with Irish at one point. Um, I also felt that there was just, I was getting to a stage in my life where I wanted to look back at things that I had learned and move things forward a little bit as well with people around me, not just scholars, but also just interested people from this country and beyond.
1: Good reasons to write a book. Um, And it's interesting, I mean, there's certainly enough material that in this book you can just focus on scotland um, without needing any comparison for anything else um, and i sort of want to do almost a greatest hits idea of the book uh, which as it suggests as a history book does move chronologically um, and we're obviously not going to be able to go into every amount of detail that the book does but hopefully we can cover at least some of the main points um, and so to start off could you kind of help us understand um scotland a long time ago the main language groups that we're looking at in pre-Christian Scotland?
0: Right. This is we're moving back here into a time almost of silence. Uh, we can look at the place names of Scotland, uh, particularly rivers. Rivers tend to keep their names for a very long time. You know, you can see that in all the Celtic river names in England, for instance, like the Thames. Uh, but what's uh, Straight, uh, the first languages that we know anything at all about, we can't even really classify. Uh, the River Tay, the biggest river in Scotland, uh, is meaningless in any known language. Uh, so this must be very ancient indeed. Um, all around me, I'm I'm sitting here talking to you in the Howe of the Mearns in Concartonshire, to the south of uh, Aberdeen. Uh, and the place names around us tell us so much about the early history of here. There are uh, there are place names which are Pictish, which is a language we now agree on, which is closely related to the the ancestor of Welsh, but maybe not as closely related as other British languages like Breton or Cornish were. Um we there's place names. There's a farm. I'm just looking out of our back window and there's a farm about a kilometre away called Pit and Moon, and the Pit there is a Pictish place form. It means place. It's peculiar to northern Scotland essentially. Um there were, so there was Pictish was spoken, and you can see this in place names like Aberteen, the mouth of the Dawn. But you also get other Celtic languages, particularly uh, P Celtic languages like uh, British or Comric or whatever you want to call it um, so that um, you get place names uh, dotted around this part of Scotland which are peculiar and could almost be taken for Welsh uh, like Kincardine, uh the which is a castle a bit to the north of here. Uh, the, the kin part's Gaelic, it means the head of, but Cardin is modern Welsh Carthen. It means a, a a small area of thick woodland or something like that. So these are the languages that were spoken when we're moving in here. Some of the rivers tell us things. Uh, the, um, the two rivers of Aberdeen, the Don and the Dee, the Dee was mentioned by Greek geographers in the first century before Christ. Um, and it's, it was called at that time dewa, which is goddess. Dawn, the other one, probably means shining, bright goddess as well. So we're going back into these places where we know people had a developed material culture, but the, the linguistic material is hints here and there, but definitely by about the time when Christianity started coming to come into Scotland in the 5th century, most people would have spoken Celtic languages.
1: But then not all those languages survive, right? So you trace out kind of they, they're there, and obviously some die, right? The one that we don't even know the name for quite obviously dies, um, and yet Pictish also dies out despite the fact that we do have remnants of it and we do know some amount about it. So how did it die out?
0: Pictish is a strange one it's easier to understand it with British because um, the eastern British territories around what's now Edinburgh were crushed in conquest by English speakers. Um, There's a great Welsh poem about the the war that this was involved in but Pictish is strange because the majority of people who lived in the north of Scotland uh, 1,100 years ago or so would have been Pictish speakers. Gaelic was an immigrant language in many ways, uh, but it was associated with uh, uh, with Christianity. And there was a sort of... Uh, during the Viking uh, settlements in the west coast of Scotland, uh, a lot of former nobles and so on from the west seemed to have transferred very happily to the east But that doesn't mean to say, even though these people were the rulers in the church, which also meant the administration, um, and also in civil administration, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that the language of their lessers will die out. Because look at England, where French died out, uh, English survived. So we don't really understand it. It's one of those strange things. Most people appear to be willing to die for their language. But some people will quite happily shift from one to another without thinking about it. And certainly by about 900 years ago, 950 years ago, the north of Scotland, the Pictish heartland, was actually the heartland of Gaelic in Scotland. Uh, Indeed, some of the greatest uh, pieces of writing outside the West Coast were written in Aberdeenshire uh, in the 13th and 14th centuries.
1: Interesting. Throughout the book, you do trace, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is so good about sociolinguistic history, is that you trace not just kind of what happens, but also try and explain sort of why and investigate reasons that people can change languages, um, which is absolutely fascinating, particularly as the book moves into um, eras of history that we can know more about. Um, for example, medieval Scotland. And you talk about how um, you kind of we've, we've talked about how Gallic sort of a este- takes over the place of Pictish in some ways, at least geographically. Um, and then in medieval Scotland, we've got English. So for listeners, that's spelt I-N-G-L-I-S, um, which is essentially Middle English, I suppose. Um, Very
0: Northern so, Middle English, yeah.
1: Northern Middle English, yeah. Um, so these two languages become the primary languages of medieval Scotland. How does that happen in this right. time period?
0: Well, it's one of those, again, it's difficult to say. I think uh, that the primary role that was played during this period was economic, economic, social, and political. A Gaelic-speaking monarchy uh, based essentially in the southern mountains of northern Scotland uh, eventually accepted that the... uh, would have to take on the trappings of Norman England to the south or be swallowed like Ireland was swallowed. Uh, by that, so you get the introduction of a ca- introduction of a uh, cash based economy. You get the introduction of the idea of the fortified marketplace, the the borough. You get uh, this brings in large numbers of people. We often think of as the Normans in Scotland, but who were probably actually English speakers by that point. Uh, who brought many people, particularly from what. I've described as greater Yorkshire, uh, sort of the lower north of England, moved north because they had an understanding of how this form of proto-capitalism would work. Um, Gaelic speakers in the south of the country um, would gradually have been pulled into the economic orbit of these new settlements, and they would have learned the borough language, but it, there would have been only limited bilingualism. Uh you know, there would have been a bit like you know what you find in say the southwestern United States, when a lot of people can speak kitchen Spanish. You know, they can speak Spanish about uh, to their their cooks and things like that—a colonial form of the local language. There would have been this gradual move over uh, in terms of language from Gaelic into Scots, what was then called English. Uh, Across a long period, particularly in the more fertile and richer parts of the lowlands of Scotland. It took longer in the north, even in the northeast than Aberdeenshire, where, well, the last speaker of Gaelic in the northeast of Scotland, you know, native Gaelic, uh, died in 1982. So it just took a lot longer there for a variety of reasons. Gaelic retreated in some ways into the Highlands and Islands, but it's worth remembering that well into the 18th century, there were probably more Gaelic speakers than Scots speakers in uh, Scotland. It's just power was in the hands of Scots speakers who were gradually becoming English speakers at that time.
1: And this is something as well that you trace in the book that as we sort of talked about so far, English sort of comes up through some amount of conquest, there's economic elements, um, and Gaelic sort of retreats. But that's not just an economic sort of aspect of it. And in fact, as we move out of the medieval period into the early modern period, you detail in the book, how this kind of divide between English or Scots speakers and Gaelic speakers, um, doesn't just kind of naturally happen in a way or sort of stay where it was in the medieval period it becomes this like really quite distinct cultural difference political difference as well as sort of being rooted in different geographies of scotland so how did kind of this intensification i suppose of the divide between the two did this impact the languages sort of how did this what was the impact of this
0: well You've, you've always got to move in certain directions with this. There's no doubt that by the late Middle Ages, early modern period, people had begun to, you know, people in the lowlands had begun to see themselves as being absolutely separate from those in the highlands. In fact, quite often, right into the late 19th century, you have people uh, describing themselves as Scottish but not Celtic. Uh, things like this, you know, so that uh, the great first great scientific uh dictionary maker of Scots, uh, Jimison, in the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, he had a theory that in fact. Uh, Scots speakers were more germanic than the english who had all this french blood in them things like that now these these are obviously you know meaningless arguments but they meant something to a lot of intellectuals and a lot of other people there was great contempt between each other it's worth noting as well that the last time in scotland where a city actually raised an army was in the early 15th century where Aberdeen fought my clan, the McDonald's, uh, just outside Aberdeen, and won, but in a terrible slaughter. Uh, so there was this constant fear of the Highland Other. That got added to by the fact that uh, uh, Highlanders and Islanders generally did not move over to Protestantism as quickly or as vociferously as Lowlanders did. So that well into the 19th century, there's a good chance that most uh, Gaelic speakers were, if not Catholics, at least Episcopalian fellow travellers. And this was feared as well. So there's all these ideological things underlying this, which led of course, in many ways, to the Anglicisation of the upper middle classes of places like Edinburgh in the eighteenth century, because they were scared. They were they had their backs to the wall as they saw it, you know, with the danger of the, the Gallic other leading armies coming back down again to put a Stuart back on the throne, or however you want to interpret that. So
1: I want to stay on the sort of religious aspect for a second. Um, what impact did the rise of Protestantism, which is such a big part of Scottish history, have on languages in Scotland?
0: I was taught at university that the uh, Protestant Reformation was the most dreadful thing that ever happened to the Scots language. Right? This was primarily seen in terms of the fact that the reformers who tended to be Anglophiles, maybe even Anglophones, more than most of their uh, compatriots were, tended to um, look towards England and use the English Bible and so on. Uh, you know, because the Protestant idea was that uh, you're the Bible for every man in their own language. Uh, the problem was, of course, that English at that time would not have been fully mutually intelligible with Scots. But the same thing happened in Norway, where because Norway was part of the kingdom of Denmark, Norway. God and the king spoke Danish. Um, the same is true in Scotland as well. And there was a magic to uh, the English Bible that people rather liked. So written Scots, it was said, was pushed out of the way because how could it compete with the language of God himself? Um, I think it's probably it's more nuanced than that because most Scots speakers in scotland for a century and a half after the reformation spoke pretty much solely in scots but wrote english they, they, you know so there is this great movement away from writing in scots scots had a major literature was the language of of administration for the kingdom uh, this all went pretty quickly in the 17th century but almost everybody continued to speak scots james the 6th himself continued as a Scots speaker throughout his life, even when he moved to the fleshpots of uh, England. Uh, his son, Charles I, only spoke Scots uh, primarily, or at least had a Scots accent right through his life. So the, it's more complex than people portrayed it in some ways. Uh, was it not uh, Edwin Muir himself who described the black crows of Geneva descending on the land? Um, it's a nice image, but it's probably not entirely true. Uh, what did make Scots speakers move into English was politics. Uh, it was the desire to get on. Um, it was the desire to be represented as a North Britain. This is 18th century, not 17th century.
1: And so then what did make the political difference? Was it James the 6th becoming James the 1st of England was it the actual union of the crown a hundred something years later how what was the political impetus
0: well i think i think it's it's an ongoing thing i, I think it was already happening before james the 6th became james the 1st of england and ireland uh the um i think protestantism was in there i think Uh, the fact that the printing press came late to Scotland as a permanent thing, which meant that since most people in Scotland who could read could read English as well they might not have been able to follow it when it was spoken but they could probably read it so there was already this movement towards it you get the union of the of the crowns but to be honest with you I don't think that made that much difference it just meant that members of the higher aristocracy moved to England because it was seen as richer pickings it did mean though that poets suddenly did not have um patrons because uh, you would, uh, would patronise uh, English poets, poets who wrote in English, uh, not in Scots. Um, the, so right the way through the 17th century, it's not, it's not a sudden thing with most people. They don't suddenly stop writing in Scots and start writing only in English. What happens is that gradually it's like it leaks, one variety leaks into the other as a as a written variety i don't think it did so much in a spoken variety although i'm sure quite a few educated scottish people could probably speak standard english in a kind of vaguely uh, biblical way
1: (laughs) that must have been quite interesting to have conversations with um and during this period we've Obviously, with the medieval and now early modern, we've may, I've mainly asked you about Scots, but of course there are still other languages in Scotland at the time, including Gaelic and Norn. Um Gaelic still exists, Norn not not as much, and um, but both were in decline in this by the end of the seventeen hundreds. Why? Yeah,
0: well, um, it's economics with Gaelic. It's economics and history. Um, Gallic was associated with rebellion against the Protestant ascendancy um, you know it was the language was actually banned uh, after 1746 uh, I mean I don't know how you do that Franco banned Basque as well but it's, it's impossible but it certainly changes in the way that uh, the Highlands were farmed meant that hundreds of thousands of Gallic speakers ended up in places where people didn't speak Gaelic some have survived, like uh, the Gaelic speakers in Cape Breton and Nova Scotia in Canada, but most places Gaelic was dead in a couple of de- generations. People like my own ancestors uh, came to West Central Scotland and worked in the new industries of the Industrial Revolution. They kept Gaelic for a while, but over time, of course, intermarriage and just you not having any connection with where your ancestors came from meant that it gradually disappeared or at least partly. Norn is different because uh, Orkney and Shetland only became part of Scotland in 1469 to 1471. Before then, they were part of the Kingdom of Denmark-Norway. And in fact, uh, originally they were given as mortgage because the King of Denmark couldn't pay one of his daughter's uh, dowries. Um, Norn um, was probably closely related to the Faroese language uh, it. we have some records of it and it seems still to have been pretty strong into the late 17th century but in the 18th century um, both Shetland and Orkney were included more into the Scottish and then into the British legal system and economic system and the bottom dropped out at the same time many people from from mainland Scotland came to Orkney and Shetland basically as carp baggers um, during that period and essentially stole land from local people because of legal differences. And that meant that people had to learn Scots if they hadn't done so already in Orkney and Shetland. But there's a considerable amount of evidence that even though people were shifting over, they regretted it. Uh, the There are memories of Norn and Norn poetry and riddles and so on, which date from probably... 75 years after the language ceased having native speakers people still had some knowledge of it so there's a deep sense that it was a very Shetland and Orkney thing to have but also that it was of no use whatsoever to you.
1: Interesting especially that appears in poetry as well that seems to be a way that a lot of these languages sort of live on even after being in everyday use Um, But another language that you talk about in the book that we've not discussed so far is, of course, Scottish Standard English. So how does this develop and how does it relate to Scots and to Gaelic?
0: Right. Scottish Standard English, of course, in many ways is just a a variation of the Standard English that developed in uh, the London area in the 15th century. It's essentially the same as, say, North American English or Australian Standard English and so on. It is probably slightly further away, particularly in terms of the use of Lexus. Uh, when I moved to London when I was 21, uh, I was studying at King's College. Uh, about a week after I moved there, some very new-looking undergraduates came up to me and said uh, "said to me, excuse me, where's the library? And I, in my best English, uh, said, oh, it is down by. Uh, and just got <laughs> blank looks. In Scots, dun by means down, uh, down a bit and then to the right or left. Mm. Um, and I just translated it into English thinking it was English. There are loads of these words that we use um, in Scottish Standard English which are not used outside, or to use the Scottish Standard English word, out with mm. something. Um, I
1: still say kirk.
0: Kirk, Yeah, just, yes, that's true. Just yes, every, uh, I these Yeah, uh, but often we're unaware of them. You know, we genuinely don't know that that's not what they're called elsewhere. Like saying, "Oh, I've got a sore head." Uh, <laughs> I remember that in London, that you know people worked out what it meant, but it was is headache, which I'd never used before. Uh, it, it's just a transliteration, as it were, of uh, Scots "sair Um So. It's got touches of that. What's interesting about Scottish Standard English is that there seems to be two different sources coming into it. There's the source of um just mainstream standard english which people had you know literate people had a highly developed sense of what it was in the 18th century but at the same time also there are people crossing over to the use of of spoken standard english in scotland uh who don't have full command of standard english so they bring in their own words as you do you know when you speak one language uh, and you're trying to speak another one closely related you'll bring them in together so in a sense uh, the whole history of second half of the 18th century beginning of the 19th century in scotland is played out in scottish standard english it both has that enlightenment desire to be uniform and the admiration of England. And along with it, you get the developing romanticism and the developing unionist nationalism of saying, no, we're important too. We're not just North Britain. We're Scots. Uh, and, you know, that famous, uh, 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 what's it? Where's your Wally Shakespeare now? Where, where is your William Shakespeare now? <laughs> it was famously shouted at a play in the 18th century in Edinburgh. Um, the... Uh, so we get this sort of intermingling of languages on an essentially standard English base, but it means that plenty of people that would not consider themselves uh, Scots speakers uh, do certainly use um, Scots phrases and terms of phrase all the time without realising it. So it's a halfway house. Gaelic, uh, of course, um, you get that strange situation, which is that most people of Gaelic-speaking heritage who have remained in the Highlands and Islands. Um, If they don't have Gaelic anymore, sadly, uh, their variety that they speak isn't Scots, although it's got heavy Scots influence upon it. It's Highlands and Islands English. It is, if you like, the English brought to the Highlands and Islands by Scots-speaking educators and ministers and missionaries and so on who were trying to speak English to them, but were always dropping in bits of Scottishness in as well.
1: Interesting. And that explains why there's still quite a lot of variation, um, particularly around vocabulary, that, again, as you said, not everyone's necessarily aware of which bits are borrowed and which bits are not. Um, But something that has come up a few times already in the interview, and obviously you discuss in the book, is... The impact of written language as well in these changes around how people speak. Um, so can you talk a bit about, uh, we, we, you've spoken about sort of English, written English coming into Scotland, um, but then there is also the impact of written Scots and Scottish Standard English in writing. How were those kind of used and developed um, even as recently as the 19th and early 20th centuries?
0: Even more recently than that, uh, I was on a a BBC call-in program years ago, I think 2013, uh, where I was talking about non-standard grammar use. And somebody phoned in to to point out to me uh, that uh, this could not be grammatical. Something I'd said could not be grammatical because show me it in a grammar book. There is often this uh, thing they say sometimes that people who have a language brought to them almost like a colonial language brought to them, will become much more picky about its use than the people back home who use it naturally. Um, you know, they used to always say that uh, Inverness people spoke the best English, whatever that is. And there you've got to think of the fact that these are people who, uh, say, 200 years ago, uh, would all have been very good second-language Gaelic speakers speaking uh, English as well. And they had a very strong sense of what English was. Uh, so there's touches of that there. Remember that Scotland, particularly lowland Scotland, uh, was highly literate, at least from the Protestant Reformation on. Just about everybody could read uh, and many people could write. And that means that the written form which you interpret through a very limited number of books, normally the Bible and maybe a few catechisms and later on Burns or whatever, feed into that. There's also a sense of purism about Scots. Uh, uh, My mother, God rest her, uh, she always felt that the the purest form was the ones in the speech of her grandparents and in Burns because they would have spoken similar dialects in some ways. Um, And... uh, the more urban touches I had in my speech were slovenly, and here, uh, uh, forgive me, English. It was slovenly English. It wasn't good Scots. So there's these endless, strange language attitudes bubbling under everywhere. I think in any any place you go, but I think it's particularly so in Scotland because it's complex, so you see it.
1: And how has Scottish Standard English, um, how does that show up, or how did it initially show up in writing?
0: well people just tried to write english i think um they you know there was a generation probably of highly educated upper middle class edinburgh and glasgow maybe aberdeen people uh who would have who would have written um standard english of london mm. But the people that followed after that, particularly those from the lower middle classes, they would have just included bits of what they would think of as spoken English, not Scots, in with it. And over time, that becomes the norm because, you know, we're talking here about the late 18th, early 19th century. This is the time when the lower middle classes become enfranchised and become the rulers
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. as well. And so then take us up to the present or close. What's the current map of languages in Scotland,
0: right? it is a bit chaotic. Um, according to the twenty eleven census, there are one point five million Scots speakers in Scotland, self defining as such. Uh, it's probably slightly more, but it's difficult to tell because the question, you know, can be interpreted in a number of different ways. Uh, on the other hand, there are. Uh, Round about 60,000 speakers of Gaelic, most of them native speakers, but also there's probably a couple of thousand people, I know a number of them, who are actually native speaker standard but didn't speak it as children uh, as well. Gaelic is protected under law in Scotland uh, under the Gaelic Language Act of tw- 2005. Uh, Scots has very limited protection. But what has been done both with the Scottish Arts Council and later on uh, uh, with uh, Culture Scotland and other organisations uh, is that a great deal of money has gone into the publication of work in Scots. Not the usual sort of poetry, although that gets plenty of money as well, but novels, uh, some of which are very good indeed, uh, some of which are differently good, but it's a matter of taste, really. Uh, you, you also get uh, lots of children's books, Coming out, um, you get translations often from English. I strongly recommend my dear former student and dear friend uh, Sheena Blackhall's translation of Jane Eyre as Gene Eyre. Mm. It's done very well, indeed, um, you know, and also from other uh, languages as well. So there's a there's a there's a push towards it. There, the thing is that at the same time. Uh, work I've carried out and others have carried out, show that a lot of what makes Scots Scots, its vocabulary, its lexical use, is drifting away. Some of this is inevitable. I mean, uh, agriculture has changed in, in my lifetime. In the last 50-odd years has changed. Fishing has disappeared. Coal mining has disappeared. These were all uh, trades which had... Immense vocabularies in the local dialects, that's all gone. You expect that, that's true in any language. But it's the fact that there's just a general slide towards colloquial English, colloquial standard English happening, um, means that there may come a time when what we describe as Scots now may not exist in the same way as it does now, I hasten to add, because it's not the same as, sadly, the the possibility is there that Gaelic could die out in the next two or three generations. That won't happen with Scots, but it might actually just, if you like, melt into colloquial English. Mm. we would all live, but uh, it would be sad in many ways that that happened.
1: Mm. So this book is obviously something that, Um, either directly or not you've been working on and thinking about for quite a long time um, and have had a number of kind of instances in your actual life of sort of being surprised by something and the example you gave of giving directions um, but are there maybe any other things you could share with us sort of behind the scenes of writing this book or researching it or thinking about it of something you've come across or experienced that's really surprised you
0: Oh, there's, there's always some. Uh, there's always a number of these things uh, kind of uh, crop up now and then. Um, one of the things uh, was how eccentric some of the theories about Pictish actually are. You know, most people <laughs> now agree Pictish is a, a P Celtic language, but you know, people claim it's. You've had people over the last fifty years claiming it was. Uh, it was Basque. Uh, people claiming uh, that it was actually Old Norse written backwards, things like that. Uh, you know, So that uh, pleased me in a way that, you know, that level of scholarly eccentricity is always wonderful to see. Uh, a sadder one, it's more like a uh, uh, r- great regret, is that people in Scotland... Um, or, what's now Scotland, from a very early period, you know, about the time that people were building the pyramids, lived, lived highly civilised lives. You just need to go to somewhere like Scarabre in Orkney, which is this prehistoric uh, village, to see these people, you know, lived cultured lives. Uh, you know, famously, one of the mantelpieces in Scarabre has got an ornament on it uh, of a particularly good example of a seashell. Um, and it's one of my great regrets is we can see how these people lived. We can get a glimpse of their internal lives, but we don't know how they spoke. Yeah, It would be just so fantastic to have a written form like they had in what's now Iraq or Egypt or China at the same time. So we just it's just darkness or silence would be better. So this is a thing which always saddens me, and there's nothing we can do about it.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, there's not. Um, but you are doing many things, I'm sure. Um, and this book was published in 2020. Um, so what have you been working on since or what are you working on now?
0: Right. Uh, well, I... Um... I've just finished a book, uh, uh, A History of the Scots Language, which is a much more linguistic work, uh, which will be published by Oxford University Press next year. Uh, I'm working on a, a book about language contact. Uh, and also, I'm starting to do some work on uh, on a book about the actual dialects of Scots as they are now, you know, both in Scotland and in Ireland. Um, you know, so that, that'll keep me busy for a couple of years.
1: I think it probably will. Um, I will. (laughs) So that sounds like a lot of work to be getting on with. Um, So while you're off doing that, listeners can um, read the book that we've primarily been discussing, which is titled A Sociolinguistic History of Scotland, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2020. Um, Robert, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Very nice to be asked.